Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. On January 1st, 1995, I vividly remember it, the Nebraska Cornhuskers were playing the Miami Hurricanes in the national championship. Miami had regularly in the preceding decade humiliated Nebraska in such contests, and Miami started off hot that night, but Nebraska had methodically worn down the Hurricane defense with an option game that stressed Miami's defense by forcing it to account on virtually every play for two players, the quarterback and the running back. And the way the play would work, you probably know this if you grew up in Nebraska, uh, the, the quarterback would run this way and the running back would run this side. And the defense had to account for both players. If they crashed on the quarterback, the quarterback would pitch it out to the running back and he would run free. If they ran to the running back, then the quarterback would keep and run straight. And this is a hard thing for defenses to defend play after play after play after play, especially after getting blocked and knocked down and blocked and knocked down. And eventually this wore Miami's defense down. Well, with three minutes left to go, less than three minutes, the score was tied at 17-7, to and Nebraska lined up once again with that I formation, with the quarterback under center and a fullback behind him and that running back. Miami had to prepare for those two options. But on that play, if you remember it, it wasn't the two options, it was a third option, a triple option, where there was an immediate handoff to the fullback, and the fullback made a trap play, not going with the play, but cutting into the interior of the line, and senior fullback Corey Schlesinger rumbled 14 yards for the game-winning touchdown. Yes, it's vivid. It was a really important time of my young life. <laughs> the point of that story is that when you were only expecting two options, when keyed into your mind are these two options and you're looking, you're looking, quarterback, running back, quarterback, running back, quarterback, running back, when you're seeing those two options and having to defend it and think about it, very often you can't even see the third option coming at you. And I think this is very much what is happening in Jesus' day as they considered the question of marriage and divorce. 
there were really two options. Either you held a very strict view of marriage and divorce, or you held a very lax, loose view of marriage and divorce. And Jesus here brings a third option that cuts right through that, going all the way back to the beginning. Our big idea as we study this particular passage about marriage and divorce is this, that Jesus sanctifies us through faithfulness in marriage. That's the third option, that Jesus sanctifies us through faithfulness in marriage. So three parts to the sermon this morning. First, marriage from the beginning. Marriage from the beginning. Second, marriage for the hard of heart. Marriage for the hard of heart. And third, marriage for singles. Marriage for singles. So first of all, marriage from the beginning in verses 1 through 6 of this passage. In verse 1, notice we read, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, if you have the King James Version, it'll say, And it came to pass. There's something that doesn't really come out well in English, Uh, But there's a line here, a a word here that Matthew uses to mark the end of significant sections of Jesus' teachings. It's happened several times in the Gospel of Matthew before, and and this is the conclusion. We just read in the last week when we came to the end of 18, the conclusion of another set of sayings that Jesus completed in Galilee. Uh, Now we read that Jesus had finished those sayings, and he went away from Galilee. Uh, And he went down into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, I want us to think about the geography of the Gospel of Matthew because it's telling a story about something of Jesus' ministry. Jesus did most of his ministry in Galilee, which is in the north, in the north of of the area that we would think of as Israel. And in the north of Israel was where Jesus was from, in, in Nazareth of Galilee. And he lived up there and he taught up there. And we read that for a while, um, after teaching and healing there, then he went up north. Um, north into Tyre and Sidon, uh, north up into, um, up into the, the area um, of, um, oh, forgive me, I'm drawing a blank, Caesarea Philippi, uh, which is the furthest north went. Uh, sometimes he would be uh, west, or e- excuse me, east of the Jordan River, uh, but most of the time he stayed with, with uh, Galilee. Now he's coming back down and he's been in Galilee, but now he has to go back south. Why south? Because at this point, Jesus as Luke puts it, as his face set toward Jerusalem. He's headed south, where he is going to, into the region of Judea in, in Jerusalem, where he is going to be crucified. But we read here that he is in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So he's across the Jordan. He's to the east side of the Jordan River in what is called the region of Perea. And this Perean ministry really lasts in chapters 19 and 20. And then 21, Jesus is going to start his ministry in Judea before ending up in Jerusalem to be crucified and killed. Why go through Perea? Well, this is a fairly common direction to go, namely because it avoided Samaria. As Jews in Galilee were heading south to Jerusalem for the annual feast, they would often go through Perea uh, to avoid the Samaritans. Um, They'd be harassed often on the way. And so there were a lot of Jews who lived on the east side of uh, the Jordan River in Perea, and Jesus is going through that region as he continues his ministry to reach all the lost house of Israel. Well, in verse 2, we read that once again, large crowds followed him, and he healed them from, uh, healed them there. Previously, Jesus had largely been withdrawing from the crowds. He started in Galilee where he was always among the crowds, always teaching, always healing. He was always among the crowds, but then he withdrew from the crowds for a time, and now he's heading back into the crowds. Once again, as he's on his way to the cross, he's going to be healing, laying his hands on people, teaching people directly as he goes into the belly of the beast in Jerusalem 
to be crucified at the hands of wicked men. Well, in verse 3 we read, and Pharisees, the Pharisees of Perea, came up to him and tested him. Now, this is the second time that we read that Pharisees, and earlier it was Pharisees and Sadducees, back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, 16, verse 1, excuse me, came to Jesus and tested him. Those two words, came to Jesus and tested him, are important because they were the words that were used back in Matthew 4, verse 3, to talk about the approach of Satan to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. The word there was that the tempter in Matthew verse 4, verse 3, that's the same word for tested here, the tempter came to Jesus in the wilderness. Well, Satan had to withdraw from Jesus after Jesus defeated him in the wilderness. But Satan continues to send his emissaries to tempt Jesus, to turn aside from his mission. Previously in Matthew 16, verse 1, they tempted him by asking him to perform some sign from heaven, a great deed to demonstrate that he was who he says he is. Now, the temptation comes in the area of doctrine. Will you compromise on marriage? That's the question that's posed to Jesus. And so they ask him this, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the question in their mind deals with Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which is really clear by what they say later in chapter 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? The text they're focusing in then is this verse, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Let me read it to you. I'm not going to read the whole section. We're going to kind of cut off abruptly because most of it doesn't have to do what's happening here. But here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, that's important, because he has found some indecency in her, that's also important, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, that's what the Pharisees are keying in on, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, dot, dot, dot. The rest is not important for our purposes today, so we'll cut off there. The question that they're asking is, when is it lawful to divorce? There were two major rabbinical views. The rabbis taught two very different perspectives. There were essentially two options at that point that the people had to account for as they thought about what they thought about marriage and divorce. There was a strict view on the one hand. Rabbi Shammai taught that that phrase, some indecency, very strictly limited the possible exceptions for divorce, namely to areas of sexual immorality, so a fairly strict view. On the looser side, uh, there was Rabbi Hillel, who taught that this word indecency, some indecency found in her, and this is very broad. Um, this actually included all the commentators point out uh, what's perhaps the most interesting example is if your wife burns dinner, that is some indecency that is a cause for divorce. If you were following Rabbi Hillel, it got looser. Uh, Rabbi Akiba on that side of things taught that no favor in, found in his eyes meant that if a man found a woman, another woman to be more attractive, prettier, that was cause to divorce his wife. So the question to Jesus was, which side are you on? Are you part of, the, part of the stricter views on divorce and remarriage? Or are you part of the looser views on divorce and remarriage? What are the exceptions for which it is permissible for a man to divorce his wife? And the, the issue is, people in that society were on both sides of the question. Whatever Jesus said, he was sure to offend someone. Both the quarterback and the running back were thoroughly defended. Whichever Jesus went, he was sure, certainly to be taken down by his answer to this question. So in verses 4 through 6, Jesus does something different. He doesn't go with the keeper. He doesn't pitch off to the running back. He takes a triple option perspective. 
he changes the frame of this debate, not to center around Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, but he goes back all the way to the beginning, to creation, and he points to the original purpose for the institution of marriage. He says, haven't you read? The idea is, you've read this, but you haven't really considered what it means. Have you not read that, in, that, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus was rejecting the rabbinical views. He was rejecting the stricter and the looser option. He was rather employing a different method of interpreting the Scriptures. And actually what's interesting is he was using a, a method that the rabbis themselves would have acknowledged as valid. He's really sticking it to them with their own game. But he's employing a, a rabbinical method of interpreting the Scriptures, which was called the more original, the weightier. So an interpretation that really got back to the more original purposes of something was a weightier interpretation for understanding something. And here, what he's pointing out is that the Pharisees had overlooked and neglected the original purpose in creation for the institution of marriage. They had started their discussion later, far after what was original, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Essentially what they were doing is they were looking for loopholes to justify marriage whenever they thought it was permissible, or to justify a divorce from marriage whenever they thought it was permissible, rather than trying to hold on to what God had assigned for marriage. That's what they're asking. Is it lawful? This is an example of legalism. It's trying to strictly define the yes-yes list and the no-no list. Yes, I can divorce in this case. No, I cannot divorce in this case. And to live by those legal rules instead of understanding the purposes for which God appointed the institution of marriage, namely, as a lifelong covenantal union between only one man and only one woman for life. Now, I, I want to say something very important in all of this, that I'm trying to frame this as a third option. This is very different than what sometimes Christians talk, which I think is somewhat dangerous, when we talk about a third way. Sometimes Christians talk about talking about a third way. You have sort of the strict view, the conservative view, you have the uh, loose view, the liberal view on something. And so the job of Christians is to sort of reject whatever excesses are on either side and to try to find this third way in the middle and work our way, hopefully avoiding the problems on both sides. The reason that's a problem, and that's not what Jesus is doing here, is he's not saying, okay, I'm not really strict and I'm not really loose, I'm not really shamai, I'm not really halal. I'm working this third way where I'm weaving through both of their errors. The reason that's a problem is because if you're defining your position based on trying to find yourself in the center of two positions, you're not grounding it in what Scripture actually tells you to do. And as culture shifts, it's called the shifting of the Overton window, as those positions move or as they increasingly polarize, it becomes increasingly less clear where the church should be on critical issues like marriage. Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't try to weave a third way through this. He goes back to the Scriptures. He goes back to creation. He says, this is the way that God appointed marriage to be from the beginning. This is where I think it's most appropriate to think of a trap play, a triple option trap play that cut against the, the flow of the play was going one way, and the trap play cut into the interior of the line and going this way. You may remember that the previous touchdown was also by Corey Schlesinger, and it was also a triple option, fullback handoff, but the fullback ran with the quarterback and the running back on this play. 
a much more vivid picture is to understand that Jesus was just entirely cutting off the cultural perspectives altogether to go straight to what the Scriptures taught. Now, if in Jesus' day the culture was confused about marriage, our culture is far more so confused about marriage. But it's important to understand that every age misunderstands marriage. Every age has a shifting Overton window where they err in different ways, but they never get to the heart of what God has commanded for marriage. That's why we have to be so clear. There's a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. The original intent rejects what our law considers to be in the United States, no-fault divorce. That's entirely excluded by marriage. Not because you find someone more attractive, not because your wife burns dinner are you permitted to divorce your spouse. But it also rejects any redefinitions of marriage. It rejects so-called gay marriage. As the culture is increasingly recognizing more than one party in a marriage, three or more parties as constituting a valid marriage, the Scripture fundamentally absolutely rejects this. Only one man, only one woman, only the union of those two as a covenantal bond for life. Everything else is a violation of God's intentions for marriage, and those violations begin very early. It's only in the first few chapters of marriage that you read a wicked man named Lamech taking for himself more than one wife in Genesis chapter 4. Now, I want to apply this to those of you who are married. Let's start off here because this is what Jesus is starting on. I want to give you a fresh appreciation of what Jesus is pointing to back to the original intent of marriage in Scripture. Your vows are permanent, and that's a good thing. That when you are dealing with your marriage and when you are interacting with the marriages of other people, you're walking on holy ground, not because married people are more special than other people. Everyone is created in the image of God and is unique and, and valued in that way, but because the holiness of the institution of marriage sets apart married couples in a way that God is looking at that marriage as something permanent and fixed and inviolable, as a holy, lifelong, covenantal bond, which means that divorce is really like cutting off a limb from your body. Marriage fuses two people together in a union of one flesh. To separate that is a horrifying, horrifying, evil thing. If you are having issues, I want to plead with you. Please, come schedule time to come talk with me. Don't walk away from the holiness of your marriage vows. These things are too important, and by God's grace, they can be worked through. God reconciles the most difficult of marriages back together. But even so, tragically, Jesus acknowledges that as much as divorce is an evil, there are times when it is a necessary evil in the next section. And this is where he gets to marriage for the hardness of heart, or for the heart of heart in verses 7 through 9. In verse 7, the Pharisees seem to think they have caught Jesus. This guy is stricter than Shammai. Can you hear him? He doesn't allow divorce under any circumstance, but that's not quite true. They pressed Jesus, saying, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? It's right there in the Bible. You pointed to the Bible. Here's somewhere else in the Bible. Certificate of divorce. That's all you need. They thought paperwork would paper over the problems of divorce. Now, what Jesus does here is, again, he goes back to the more original. And he says, this doesn't change anything about the original purposes for marriage. But if you go back to the beginning and you read through the third chapter, you understand that from the beginning, things changed. 
that what God had appointed marriage for in the beginning, in that context, there was no sin. But very soon, the human race fell into sin, and hard hearts created evil contexts where divorce became a reality. Not a reality to be pursued or to be justified, a loophole to exploit, but sometimes a tragic, awful, limb-severing reality. When a limb has gangrene in it, as awful as it is to cut off a limb, it's necessary for the survival of the patient. And Jesus acknowledges that sometimes it is necessary in these cases for divorces to happen not because it's the original purpose, but because of sexual immorality. And this is what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What Jesus is teaching here is that even though no-fault divorce is possible under our laws in the United States, A no-fault divorce does not annul a marriage in God's eyes. Paperwork doesn't fix it. Just shuffling around the right forms doesn't fix it. If you divorce your wife to pursue someone else, and even if the paperwork has been filed in the right way, if you marry that other person, you are still committing adultery against your original wife because it doesn't annul your marriage in God's eyes. But that's actually the principle, the reason for why Jesus acknowledges sexual immorality as an exception to the rule. Because in adultery, it's not the innocent, offended party, the one against whom the crime of adultery has been committed, who sues for divorce, who is guilty of breaking the marriage. It is the offender. It's the one who is entering into divorce. It's the one who has sinfully broken his or her marriage vows. That person has violated the covenant of marriage. And because that person has already violated the covenant of marriage, sometimes it is necessary for this other person to sue for divorce. Now, it's not required that people who are in marriages that have been fractured by divorce, that they must ne- or by, by adultery, must necessarily divorce. God can even reconcile these cases, but sometimes where there is such hardness of heart, especially when people are not willing to turn from their sin, divorce becomes a necessary evil. But I want to acknowledge in these cases, because we, it is because we understand how firm, how fixed, how inviolable the marriage vows are, that we recognize that people who are divorced from these circumstances, that they are victims in this. They are not sinning in this. They are the ones who have been sinned against. The church needs to come around people who are in such cases, who have been harmed by such cases. And in this case, the Scripture teaches that if they are free to divorce, Again, Jesus says, even if you separate from your wife, that's not a divorce in God's eyes. Therefore, you are not permitted to remarry without committing adultery. But for those for whom the marriage has already been broken by the offending party, and they divorce from that, that person then, by the same logic, is free to remarry. If you talk to such people, this isn't the life they wanted. This isn't what they would have chosen for themselves. But it's a tragic reality that the church needs to come around to support such people and to support such people, even when they enter into new marriages, as something that Jesus teaches, not as the way it was intended from the beginning, but as a necessary entailment of this high view of marriage as it was from the beginning. 
Now, these situations are so difficult. There are a thousand questions you could ask. What about this? What about that? What about this case? What about that case? I'd encourage you, um, the, the PCA or denomination has a, a, a position paper written on divorce and remarriage, and it is so good at working through all of the relevant texts. We're just looking at a handful, uh, one, and we're going to look at one, another one in just a little bit on working through marriage and divorce, but this works through all those passages. Um, it's long. I've simplified it to some degree by trying to boil it all down to a logical flow chart. If that helps you, ask me, and I'd be happy to get you that information. But I, I want to say that it is not that we are searching for the exceptions to try to figure out when divorce is and is not justified, not to create a new yes, yes, and a no, no list. I want to say it's actually because we have this high view of marriage that we recognize this as a valid time for divorce to happen. We want to everywhere beware legalistic justifications for divorce. Where we're always trying to look for a loophole, to exploit a loophole, to try to justify sinful desires. One commentator, R.T. France, says, you know, it's interesting on the surface, Jesus sounds like he's siding with the stricter view and maybe even going a little beyond it. Oh, he's from the school of Shammai or even more strict than Shammai. But what Jesus is doing is actually this third option. It's totally different. It cuts against the culture. Because what Shammai did is he started with the need for divorce in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and then started trying to figure out this list. Yes, yes, no, no. Yes, it's acceptable. No, it's not acceptable. That's what legalism does. It tries to live life by a long list of do's and don'ts. What Jesus does is he points us to the infinitely high standards of God and the permanency of the institution of marriage between one man and one woman. And Jesus starts with that definition, says that's what we should be pursuing for. Yes, tragically, exceptions exist, but they are not the norm. And so as we think about what Jesus says here, I want to urge you, beware a legalistic heart that is asking, well, what about this? Would this permit me to get out of my marriage? That's the wrong road to head down. You know, we preached previ- I preached previously on marriage and divorce because Jesus says something about it back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And after that sermon, my wife asked me, well, what about single people? Um, And that's a good question. Um, The answer is, well, we hadn't come to this passage, so now I'm dealing with that. So now let's talk about single people. Uh, Third, this comes to the question of marriage for single people. I know we have a number of single people in the congregation. Now, as we read this last part, the disciples come to Jesus, marriage for singles, in this third section, in verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now, in in that case, it's really interesting. In in the culture of that day, really really men had all the authority to decide whether to divorce or not. They could make this decision sort of unilaterally. It wasn't two-way. Women uh, perhaps could have done it in some cases, but it was much more restricted. And these disciples are looking at what Jesus is saying, and they're saying, wait wait a minute, I, I don't have the power to pull the plug here? What if I marry someone and there's no escape clause? What if we fight? Uh, what if we lose our spark? What if, I, what if we lose our spark? What if I find someone else more attractive? What if my spouse burns dinner? What if my spouse gets really sick? And I just don't want to have to hassle with all of this. The question they're asking is, is wait a minute, I, I don't have a loophole to sort of stretch to fit my position? Now, while the cultural situation then is very different from ours, the hardness of heart remains the same. Because now we have just more justifications, more loopholes to stretch out, and we don't even need to stretch them. They're pre-stretched. In our society, you can get divorced for anything. You don't have to even try to walk through those loopholes. 
But Jesus is handling this seriously. He's not just going to go back on it and say, oh, yeah, it's really tough. You probably should avoid it altogether. He's actually confronting them. And he's saying, do you not understand what a beautiful, wonderful institution God has given you? This is a great blessing. You should pursue it. But yet there are cases of people who should not pursue marriage, but it's not for the hard-hearted, self-centered reasons that you're not pursuing marriage. And so Jesus starts talking about eunuchs. Now, eunuchs in those days, the word is literally for castration here. And Jesus is talking in those days, there were some who were born eunuchs, there are some who were born with birth defects, and there are some who were made eunuchs by men, who were castrated by other people. Uh, what would happen is if you had a man who had to be, had charge over women, so um, sort of the assistant to a noblewoman, uh, perhaps the queen, or perhaps um, if you read the book of Esther, uh, King Ahasuerus uh, had a eunuch who was set over the harem of his wives. And this man was going to be constantly interacting with these women. And by castrating these young boys before puberty, they were removing any sex drive from these men. And so these men were safe as eunuchs to be interacting with these women in these sensitive, delicate situations. Now, Jesus then is pointing to those two examples to illustrate a different kind of being a eunuch a different kind of being a eunuch. He says, and there are those are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, I, I have to, at this point, be very clear um, because of the strangeness of our culture and the hard-heartedness of our culture that is increasingly trying to castrate, especially young children, um, and to do other kinds of mutilation on girls, to try to make girls into boys or boys into girls. Uh, this is not something God made them male and female from the beginning. Uh, go back to the original. That was God's purpose in marriage. You cannot simply do a surgical procedure to change this. I have to be very clear that the Scriptures are not. Jesus is not authorizing these kinds of sex change operations. Our denomination has actually uh, written a letter to the magistrate. We sent a, a humble petition. This is such a serious issue. We want to be very clear. This is a wicked violation of the bodies of children and, and, and even of adults whom God made in His image, male and female. And one of the clear texts about this is, you know, Paul is one of those that Jesus would be talking about here, the Apostle Paul. He, he's not married. He does what Jesus is talking about here, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But in Galatians 5 verse 12, he talks about those who are overemphasizing the necessity of circumcision as an ongoing requirement for, uh, for uh, salvation. And he goes on and says, this is an absurd thing. I wish they would just go ahead and castrate themselves, those who, are mass or those who are troubling you. He's saying, here's a ridiculous idea that I don't even need to think that you think that I'm being serious here. Well, fast forward to the 21st century. We need to be clear. That was a ridiculous idea then, and it is a horrifying idea now. I want to be really clear when we talk about that. So what then is Paul talking about? Well, the problem in what Paul was dealing with is they were relying on the flesh. If I just perform the right surgical procedure, then there's salvation and life and joy there. And they were missing the Spirit, faith and the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Well, Jesus is also talking about spiritual realities. He's not talking about a physical reality. If you can just physically take a drug or perform some surgical procedure to get rid of your sex drive, that's great. He's talking about self-control. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about 
The Greek word is enkrateia. It's an important word. It means self-control, but it's important because it was a word used in Greek philosophy for the Stoics. Uh, the Stoics taught that you would pursue your best life by a strict discipline of the will. So the idea that even my mind may think about something else, even though my desires may be raging towards something else, my best life is when I white knuckle and beat my will into submission where I don't do the very things that I want to do. That's your best life now. But in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul isn't talking about that. He's talking about a, a group of people who have self-control over their desires. Not what they do with their desires, but their desires themselves. So an early church father, Clement of Alexandria, who lived from the year 150 to 215 A.D., so very shortly after the time of Paul, about 100 years later, he writes this. He says, the human or the stoic ideal of self-control, and Kratea uses the same word there, consists in struggling against lust and in not yielding to lust so as to manifest the deeds of lust. But among us, self-control means not to experience lust at all. Our aim is not merely to be self-controlled while still experiencing lust in the heart, but rather to be self-controlled even over lust itself. But this kind of self-control is attained only by the grace of God. Theologians call this grace, where it's not just that you're not acting on desires, it's that your desires themselves are put in a place of self-control. They call this the gift of continency, not the gift of celibacy. The reason that Protestants have historically rejected vows of celibacy is because we were created to have sexual desires and drives, because we were created to be in marriage, which is the right expression of those drives, and to just try to repress that without having this grace, this gift of God to keep these desires in control has led to all kinds of horrible abuses, all kinds of horrible sexual immorality. So it's not just the gift of celibacy. Don't also, also don't call this the gift of singleness. Singleness is just a status. You can use it for holy or unholy purposes. It's continency. Now, we only use this to describe control over one's bladder, but the way that uh, this, is just, this is being used in the Bible is talking about control over your desires, spiritual inward. You can't do that by beating your body into submission. The only way this comes is by the grace of God. And God gives this grace to certain people so that these desires will not be a distraction as God unleashes these people to be great forces for the kingdom of heaven. Eunuchs who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. To go anywhere, do anything without having to worry about the effects that this will have on wife and children or, or, or husband or wife or children or others. Now, some of you have been given this gift, and it is a good gift, but it's not for your selfish indulgence. And those of you who really have this gift know that. You live your lives devoted to serving other people. And that's a wonderful thing. You may get this gift in seasons, either early in life when you're still single, before marrying, and it may go away later, so you may enter into marriage. You may get this gift later in life. Paul talks about this in the context of those who have spouses who have died and are considering remarrying. And he's talking about, consider this. Do you have this gift of continency? It's a good gift. Jesus had this gift. Uh, not that Jesus had sin to repress at all. He was without sin. But Paul also had this gift. Both of them had their desires completely under control for the work that they were supposed to do in the kingdom of heaven. But this is never something to just try to claim for yourself or to make vows that you're going to undertake. It's not something to white knuckle. Our larger catechism, uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 138, talks about what are the duties required by the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. 
Well, one of those duties is marriage by those that have not, do not have, the gift of continency. If your desires are not under self-control, you need to be pursuing marriage. That's what God intends you to do with those desires. I've written an article on this that God has not called you to a life of stoic singleness. If that would be helpful for you, let me know and I will get you a link to read that article. Well, I want to bring this final point to application, not to those who are married, not to those who are considering divorce, uh, but to those who are unmarried today. I want you to really think and evaluate seriously and soberly whether you have the gift of continency. Jesus says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. If you have this gift, this is a great gift, not for your selfish pursuits, but to pursue for the kingdom of God. The Lord can use you remarkably, and again, maybe that's for a season or maybe that's permanent through the course of your life, but don't try to white-knuckle it. It's your duty. If you recognize that you don't have that gift, that you do have these desires, then you need to pursue marriage. And the Scriptures teach us you need to pursue marriage without any undue delay. Larger, Westminster Larger Catechism 139, the next question, what are the sins forbidden by the Seventh Commandment? You shall not commit adultery. One of those sins forbidden is the undue delay of marriage. Now, sometimes the undue delay of marriage looks like dating for too long without marrying. Don't do this. The longer you date without marrying, the harder purity becomes. That's something to evaluate seriously and soberly. Get married. Get married if you need to, to avoid sin, to avoid burning with passion. Or put off dating if that's not something that you can do right now. But other times, this idea of undue delay of marriage means simply putting off marriage and life. Our culture puts off marriage later, statistically speaking, than any other culture at any other point in human history. It's ridiculous how long we put off marriage. Now, I want to be sensitive. There are some of, the, of you who want to be married and are not. You're not trying to put it off. You just simply cannot find someone, the right person to marry. And I want to recognize it is because we have such a high view of marriage that we recognize that is suffering. It's obedient, faithful suffering if that's a situation that God has given you in this life. But come talk to the elders. We would love to pray with you that God would provide you the spouse for which your heart longs. But for others, uh, for those of you, um, the idea who are saying, well, it's better not to marry right now for various self-centered reasons, don't miss this sanctifying blessing. Don't unduly delay marriage because it puts you in bad situations. It lets those desires run amok in your heart and in your life without finding the place that God has ordained for the expression of those desires in marriage. But I want to bring this back to what Jesus said earlier. As you pursue marriage without any undue delay, do so with your eyes wide open to the permanence of marriage. Understand, this is a fixed, holy reality. And Paul warns elsewhere, do not be yoked with unbelievers. And it's a warning, don't even be with those who are not spiritually strong. Those make for very difficult marriages, and the Scriptures teach you're not, that's not a, a, a loophole, an exception to get you out of marriage just because your partner is not at the same, uh, your, your spouse is not at the same level of sanctification. Set your heart on marriage, but do so in the right way. Set your heart on marriage by seeking someone who can help you further your own sanctification. Now, to try to close all of this, as we think about marriage, again, the biblical view of marriage cuts against the flow of culture in so many different ways. Just by the definition of it. One man, only one man, and only one woman for life. But at the same time, Jesus is calling us back to recognize that marriage is so important. 
so precious. Hold it high. Don't seek a reason to get out of your marriage. Pursue it with all of your heart. But recognize that Jesus is doing this not for our own personal indulgence, not for us to do whatever we want. It is to sanctify us through faithfulness in marriage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed sanctify marriages in this church. I pray that if there are any who are struggling, that you would bring that into the light, that people would come around them to strengthen and encourage them, especially the elders of this church. I pray, Father, that if you have people who are considering marriage, that you would help them to think seriously about what they are going to undergo and go for it without undue delay, but with eyes wide open to what they are entering into on this holy ground. And I pray also for those who are single, whether for a season or for their lives, that you would give them indeed the gift of continency to control their desires, that they would be freed not to selfishly pursue their own desires and ends, but to follow you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we pray that whether single or unmarried or widowed or widowered, that this entire church should be filled, and in some cases divorced tragically, that you would fill this entire church with your spirit, that we would all pursue the holiness that you have set out in the sexual ethic, this ethic of marriage and divorce that Jesus gives to us, teaching us what the scriptures have taught from the beginning.